Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1, and by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast. I'm joined by uh, Peter Neal. And Danny Rees as a special uh, sort of bonus guest, shall we say, for this episode. And we're going to be discussing the recently released series, SAS Rogue Heroes. It's been released on the BBC. All six episodes uh, dropped at the same time. And just a bit of a spoiler alert, I've watched all six episodes and so have Danny and Pete too. So if you want to go and watch uh, that series and stop listening to this podcast and go and watch the series and come back, or if you want to find out a little bit about the series and our thoughts, listen on. The series uh, is written by Stephen Knight of Peaky Blinders uh, fame. And the series kind of got its inspiration from Ben McIntyre. So Ben McIntyre is an author and he wrote the book SAS Rogue Heroes. And that's where they've got their inspiration from to make the series. So I'm going to go to uh, Pete first. So I'm going to say to Pete and ask the question simply, what was your initial reaction when you heard about the series being released? And coupled in with that, what did you think of the first episode? Well, when I first heard that this series was being made, I was uh, it was kind of a double-edged sword for me, really, because I was like, "This is uh, it's about time something about the British was done uh, in World War II, because it's not all about the Americans, is it, at the end of the day? Um, and then... Having it as the SAS, I'm like, yeah, that's good because that draws in viewers, all the rest of it, because, you know, they were a special breed of soldier. Uh, I was like, yeah, this is going to be absolutely fantastic. But then the other side of me went, this could be done very, very terribly at the same time as, you know, as we've seen many a times in films and television where they'll play very loose with the truth and, like, the way it's worn and stuff like that. So, yeah, I was... I sort of had mixed feelings about it. I was excited, yet I had mixed feelings about the series. So going on to the first episode, um, yeah, like the beginning bit was all right. Like, so for like the first, sort of, say, two, three minutes, I thought it was very slow to start off with. And like you had this like convoy out in the middle of the desert, and then you had uh, David Sterling walking up to, obviously, the convoy commander with a pair of aviators on. Uh, <laughs> um have a conversation with him and then walk off. And as obviously when he walked off, uh, they start playing the new, the uh, part, the soundtrack to it. Like the beginning bit was really good. Like the soundtrack, it was very traditional in a way, but then that part of the soundtrack actually became more modern music. And I thought, Oh, here we bloody go. Um, but actually I think the modern music works quite well in the series. Yeah, it, it does work in a way, a very artsy way. I have to admit um, I think it's one of those, it's a bit like Marmite, you either either love that or you hate it. But Danny, welcome again to the Living History UK podcast. Uh, what's your thoughts then on the uh, sort of anticipation lead up to the series uh, being released, but also of the first episode itself? Well, hi, Stephen P. Thanks for having me back onto the podcast again. Really excited to be back on the air again, as it were. Well, I, I've heard I heard about Rogue Heroes coming out over a year ago now, well, Um and I was, I was quite actually quite excited about having something on the SAS. Obviously, being a Herefordshire lad, 
it's kind of you know in, in under everyone's tongue that's what's, what's going on and what's coming on but some of my my greatest friends as it were the old and bold of the regiments actually you know met those originals were trained by those originals when they when the regiment was reformed a few of them rejoined in the 50s a good friend of mine uh, dave Sini, was very good friends with david sterling so obviously getting that that first hand account of how these chaps really were i was actually quite excited about seeing this on the on the, on the big screen you know being being brought up as a young a young lad on band of brothers and all those great big hbo series is I was like, oh, this is going to be really good. So, you know, I, the night came of the, the premiere as well on the on the TV and sat down. And to be fair, I was actually quite shocked. I, it was great seeing, you know, the great number of British vehicles on the TV and seeing something from a British point of view. But my main shocker was the way David Sterling was put across. I've dealt with chaps who knew him. It, you know, even even in in his in his older years, shall we say, and he was, I think, he was portrayed. I know he's coming from the Peaky Blinders generation, and he's been played like Thomas Shelby, but I think David Sterling had more of a he was a a quietly cunning kind of chap. But yeah, it was great seeing. Um, it was great seeing. You know, obviously the the British in Cairo and that that forgotten type of the war because everyone always thinks of World War Two as just as just being in France and Germany. It was great seeing you know the the African campaign being portrayed, and especially the the original SAS. Absolutely, uh, growing up, and I'm sure uh, you know both of you guys fall into the same category. Um, you mentioned Band of Brothers, for instance, Saving Private Ryan, the same kind of era. You know, we grew up with all these American sort of uh, films and series around, and yeah, they're great. Don't get me wrong, but we've always had that sort of void of British films. Of course, it was the glory days, fifties and sixties, like Longest Day and the original Dunkirk and so forth. But there was nothing really in like the sort of late nineties and early two thousands um, that sort of sort of matched Saving Private Ryan and so forth. So it's actually really nice to have. Uh, a British series coming onto the, onto the telly depicting, you know, British soldiers in World War Two. So that that in itself is really refreshing. Now, Danny, you mentioned about the uh, the way that Sterling, uh, David Sterling, of course, was portrayed, and I let you, let you guys into a little bit of a semi secret in a way to those who um, aren't in the inner sanctum. I actually did a day as an extra on set on Rogue Heroes, and you might just spoil me in episode two. And the takeaway memory I have of that day is of how um, Sterling was portrayed by, I think it's Cotter Swindles who play, plays him. And uh, I, I really didn't feel that great about how he was portraying him. Um, I feel a little bit better having watched episode two and the reason why he was doing it that way, but he's play, played him on that particular day as a very brash, outspoken, um, sort of not even a gentleman in that sense, you know, swearing and, and being very outlandish. And I just thought, you know, this is not the David Sterling that I've seen from the seventies interviews or read about or heard about from people who are interested in that sort of era, you know, Blair Paddy Main perhaps get away with that to a degree, but definitely not David Sterling. You know, they were like yin and yang from everything that I'd, I'd read on that uh, kind of period. So that was a little bit of a, you know, the anticipation for me, I was thinking, oh, God, you know, this is going to be very interesting to watch when it hits the screens. But um, I, I would I would say I'm a little bit disappointed with how he's portrayed, but it's nowhere near as bad as I, I thought it would be. But my opinions on episode one, when I watched it, I, I thought it was okay. I, it was very apparent to me that it was Peaky Blinders in the desert, and that is a phrase I'm going to more than likely come back to. Obviously, you know, the guy who wrote Peaky Blinders, Stephen Knight, he ran extremely fast and loose with the truth 
Uh, there's barely any truth at all in the Peaky Blinders series. You know, by the, the time the series is, is sort of uh, depicted in you know, sort of post-World War One, the peak, real Peaky Blinders were long eradicated by then anyway. So he's kind of completely made that up. Now, with SAS Rogue Heroes, it's apparent in episode one, he's run you know, fast and loose with the truth, you know, in elements, not in its entirety. And I think he'd be the first to admit that from interviews that I've seen. But I found myself wanting to watch episode two. And I I did watch episode two on the night it was released. Um, and the story did start picking up. And I think the way that Paddy Main was uh, portrayed was not necessarily questionable, but there's a couple of, uh, couple of parts of the way he's portrayed where I thought, hmm, a little bit, mm, raise a few eyebrows, you know, uh, knocking out three red caps for an instant, you know, for instance, and then escaping jail, a little bit odd. I don't think there's much truth in that. Um, but what did you guys think as the the season uh, or or series, don't want to go down the American route, the series rumbled on? After the first, I, I already said this, but when we knew it was being actually like, officially released, like the build-up, like the 48 hours to the build-up, I, I said to both of you, it's like, I'm going to watch the first episode, rip it to bits, then I'm going to watch it again to watch it for what it actually is. And that's exactly what I did. So watching it the second, so I like watching the second episode uh, first time around and then going through the series, it, I think it's, it's good. You know, um, I think there could have been more action in it. Um, like sort of been mentioned how they sort of played around with some of the truth, the timeline, isn't quite right with certain things, I don't think. Um, but yeah, as a all in all, it's, it's is a series worth watching because um, there is some things they do get right and they get it right quite well in like certain ways of wearing kit and things like that. But, um, but yeah, if you watch this and you're um, of the mindset of us where you're looking for like authenticity and all that. Just kick that out of your head because this is not a drama documentary. Don't watch it thinking that this is going to teach you all about the SAS because it's not. It will give you a loose understanding about what they're all about, but don't treat it as a drama documentary. Just treat it as t- as a TV drama. And that's what I did. And I actually quite enjoyed it. And I am looking forward to season two if they do have one. Yeah, I agree with you there, Pete. I, I, I class is like a light entertainment program, as it were. Don't take it too seriously. If you want to watch it as serious documentaries, there's some really good ones out there already on the SES in the desert. One thing I wish they'd actually pushed in some of the earlier episodes of um, SES Rogue Heroes, they actually pushed the connection with the LRDG better. The LRDG is only pressed on a little bit. Those of you who don't know, the LRDG is the Long Range Desert Group. And it was made up of you know, basically uh, ragabonds of the desert. But you also had some interesting characters. For example, you had a yeomanry squadron. You had a guard squadron uh, of the LRDG. And I, the, the early uh, uh, operations of the SES relied solely on the LRDG to get them in and get them out. They didn't do their own ops in their own vehicles, which originally didn't start with Jeeps. They started off with Chevrolet lorries until a lot later. And I wish in a way they'd actually touched on that a bit more with the LRDG stuff. Also, some of the other desert units, you know, you had the Greek Sacred Squadron there in the, in the desert as well. And you also had various forms of other forms of commando. I did like how they touched on some of the commandos, but I think they could have they could have widened it to show such how much of a mixed bag there was in the, in the Middle East at the time. Absolutely agree with that. I think they kind of missed a trick 
uh, in not depicting 11 Commando. I think that's correct, which um, McGonagall and, and Maine were in originally, and they had a bit of a foray um, against the the uh, sort of uh, French at some point, if my memory serves me well. I think that backstory would have been really good to show, as well as um, David Sterling in, in Scotland and like, kind of mixing a bit of the love at Scouts, perhaps. They could have put something together maybe to provide more uh, by sort of framing that whole story a little bit more. I think they also missed out a trick by not having David's brother portrayed at all, uh, to the best of my knowledge in the series, um, because he was instrumental in setting up the SAS. Uh, that would have been lovely to see. But there's definitely some parts of me that think, oh, they've missed this, they've not included that. But, do you know, I, I think it was Pete who said it, you hit the nail on the head, it's, it's, uh, it's entertainment. It's not a factual documentary series. If that's what you're looking for, don't watch SAS Rogue Heroes, a six-part series. Go and watch Ben McIntyre's three-part uh, namesake documentary because that is absolutely, dare I say, pond upon sterling stuff. It's amazing. Uh, that was terrible, wasn't it? But, um, yeah, from each of you guys, I'd love to know what your uh, favourite episode was and, and what your standout moments were in the whole entire series. So, Pete, I'm putting you under pressure, but shoot from your hip. Um, I don't have a favourite episode to be quite honest um i just have favorite bits from episodes i couldn't go to like say i don't know episode five was my favorite absolute blinder uh, no i can't i just, it's just that like for me every episode had its best bits for me um uh it's like the uh the you know we got the i think it's in episode two i think it was uh, when you got Jock Lewis, uh, when he's at Tobruk, um, he sat there and he's praying, um, because he was a deeply religious man, which is, I think, that was a good thing to add into that. But he, you know, he, he says his prayer, puts his hat on, lights a fag, walks out, and like uh, there's shells going off around him and things like that. But he's, you know, he sort of stood like the rock of Gibraltar, like checking on the men walking along. Then he just goes and sits on an ammunition box, drinking a brew and looking out into the desert while these shells are going off. And I, like that, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and then all the action scenes, I really liked the action scenes that they did in it. There was um, some good bits in them. So yeah, I, so that. That for me is uh, my sort of best bits because uh, I'll, I'll just be sat here for ages and uh, there'd be no point in watching the series because <laughs> everybody would get a good idea what the series is actually about episode for episode. But yeah, that's that that's the, that's the bit I like. Um, I quite liked the finale um, actually uh, in the final episode when uh, no, it wasn't the finale. I think it was episode five. Actually, I don't think it was episode six. I think it was in episode five when um, they finally get the jeeps um, rearmed uh, with the new weapons and that, and they actually go on to destroy the German aircraft going down the runway, which they become quite famous for on how they were doing that. So yeah, that that I quite liked. You know, when all the jeeps all fanned out, um, you know, Sterling sort of gave the signal, and they all fanned out, and that was it. They just unleashed hell all down this. Uh, runway blowing loads of stuff up which was uh really cool so yeah that that that'll be what i'd say is my favorite stuff from the, from the series there could be more of it as well more action yeah i agree with you Pete. it was actually in episode six when they were going down the runway and sterling gives the fan they form up in v and they're going down the runway with all the vickers k's going i probably that's the, my favorite bit of the, the first six episodes i think you've seen that especially the airfield action scenes 
and seeing some friends' vehicles who've been hired out for the uh, hired out for the filming, which is quite nice seeing them. Can obviously see them in a field in in England rather than seeing them in the desert, which is quite nice. But I must admit, this, my second bit, obviously, is anything involving Jock Lewis because he's probably the best represented chap in the series. They've really put, come put him across near enough, bang on how he really was. And it's a great shame that sadly you know, he was killed. His death is wrong. I'm going to say this now, how he, he died, but they've done it for TV. He actually received a 20 mil um, cannon round into the leg and he bled out within four minutes. Um, but they've they obviously dramatised it. Those of you who haven't watched it, you'll see. Um, yeah, they've, they've played around with that. They could have they could have kept it as a hack, actually how it happened and been true to who he was. But yeah, I have to agree with that, Pete. That, you know, and the ending of episode well, episode episode six when they're going down the runway, jeeps are in a V. All the Vickers K's are all warmed up and they're uh, unleashing unleashing fury, as it were. Yeah, that that image. I mean, it's conjuring in my mind now. Just like those jeeps fanning out and just letting rip with all those Vickers K guns and fifty guns. It's just bloody awesome. That's definitely the the climax of of the series. You know, obviously it's episode six. It's the final episode. But it's classic Stephen Knight. Anyone who's watched Peaky Blinders. You'll know what I'm talking about. It's that same. It is a winning formula. There's no, there's no sort of point debating that it works, and that's why he was drafted in to write it. And yeah, it, it's a fantastic way to to round the series off. Now, Jock Lewis is definitely the Alfie Allen who uh, portrays Jock Lewis. I should say, definitely the standout uh, actor. Uh, really, real great portrayal of him. Uh, almost fairly true uh, to the original guy as well. Definitely done him, done him proud in that sense. But in particular with Jock Lewis, the one uh, sort of my, one of my favourite bits is, I believe it's episode two, if memory serves me well, is where he's actually making up uh, his um, improvised Lewis bombs. And I, that's just such a nice little touch. It shows you just not necessarily how chaotic it was, but the way that these guys were... Um, setting themselves apart from normal military convention and they were having to adapt and overcome with what they had. And it shows him sort of a bit of trial and error and then he gets it right. And then when they go on and do their first raid, they all kind of celebrate because they work. And I really, really like that point that they'd, they'd included that sort of simple um, sort of story inside that episode. And I thought that was just real, real nice um, sort of addition to it. But I also really like the fact that they included Operation uh, Squatter as well which was a complete disaster. You know, there was no military gain at all uh, but from that operation. It was complete, almost pointless doing it, dare I say. Lost a lot of guys by doing it. And, um, you know, for the North Africa campaign, it was the first and last real time that they, they parachuted in and it led to the LRDG sort of linking up with them and so forth. But I really like that they included that because it's not necessarily always about success. It's about that trial and error. And I think that was quite nice that they included that failure in there to show that, you know, although these guys were putting themselves out there and trying to do something different, that they didn't necessarily have all the answers. They had to, you know, go through that sort of phase of of trial uh, trial and error. But I'd, I'd love to hear some of the sort of um, uh, sort of critical thinking that you guys have got in terms of, of the series, any sort of real plot holes or um, historical inaccuracies. Now, you know, sort of uh, insert a, a sort of a note here. We could be here for many hours debating this, but just um, just give us one or two sort of weaknesses, dare I say, that you've, you've found throughout the, the course of the, watching the series. There was no need for the love story. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you in my opinion because as far as i'm concerned it was all about the sas not david sterling getting his end away with a fictitious secret agent so uh yeah she that element of the story sort of wound me up a little bit because it was like you're taking away more from the story because that all that recording time on this stupid love affair thing um could have been used for more blowing of stuff up and or punch ups in Cairo and things like that. So I was, yeah, that was some that did rattle my cage a bit um, with the series. And I'm, and, um, I'm glad like we all agree about uh, Jock Lewis's character. About I, I also believe this as well as that he was the out the three of them, um, he was the best portrayed as in like true to life. Um, on how he was, but um, they also, where you mentioned Steve, where they give that little nod to where you got him, you know, doing the um, explosive experiment. They also do another nod to him as well. When they're handing out their uh, jump wings and they, they even say that the wings are designed by jock, which they were because he did design the wings. So there's another nod to him as well. So another sort of nod, you know, sort of another nod saying how integral this man was in the uh, birth of the regiment. But I do like, you know, like the desert life scenes that they got, like when they sat around camp. I quite like those special. I think it's when the French turn up in it um, and all sat around in deck chairs, you know, just like just sat there in shorts. They got beards and, you know, looking grubby and, you know, sort of got that typical kind of image to how you'd imagine them to look like out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Um, I did like that. Um, but yeah. That's uh, that's something I liked from it and disliked. Yes, I agree with you there, there Pete. The, the, the two things that stood out for me, I, you know, we could always pick out things, obviously, like uniforms and using an off-spray book for reference. But um, the two things that stood out for me, really, was they missed a serious trick. There is one of the originals still alive who's still got all of his marbles and he's still really switched on. Mike Sadler of the Long Range Desert Group who was, re- was re- then transferred on honorary status, as it were, to the SAS. 
He's still with us. He's still got his marbles with him. With him, why didn't they go and interview him before the series and ask these little details about how the mannerisms of the chaps are? What were they like? They'll he'll talk about it to the cows come home. Why didn't they use that that primary resource? How could, much better could you get a resource? And actually, oh, you were there. How did how did David Sterling act? What 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 was uh, you know uh, obviously what was Paddy's uh, uh, you know how was his mannerisms what are, what was the speculations you had about his his orientation why didn't they go to speak to him and the second thing that yes it's a spoiler alert the end of episode six the capture of David Sterling did not happen like that one bit whatsoever they were asleep on the patrol and he was captured by a German dentist. Why I don't know why they couldn't just keep those little bits of information together how it actually was. Why they have to glorify that they jump out of a perfectly good jeep and attack a Panzer tank or whatever German tank it was with Thompsons. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Dave. That that rattled my goat as well, where it made it look like he was going to go down in this like blaze of glory type thing, and I'm like, no, that's not. Yeah, that's just you've taken away what this what this is. You know, it's like. I can see like, from a driver's perspective, it's like, yeah, obviously he's like the main player, so he needs to go down in some sort of blaze of glory. But sometimes just stick with the actual story to how this happened. And like one thing I think they also like talk about missing tricks, Danny. I think a good one, what they could have put in, which would have been awesome as well. I know I, I know it probably took a bit to film it, but it's like that operation they did up in Benghazi when there was when they had the, they had two Matilda tanks with them. Where there's like all those jeeps, vehicle, all those vehicles, jeeps or whatever, your lorries, um, and two Matilda tanks, which they ended up um, getting scuppered out in the uh, sand marshes. But that big operation that they went to do with that, that would have been pretty cool, I think. But again, they missed a trick on it. Yeah, I agree with you there, Pete. A few things they could have uh, played around with the CGI. Obviously, you know, the... the they did all this during COVID and all that. But for example, it's, it's playing around there. You know, they could have got a few more bits done with CGI. I don't know how the, the budget was just chewed up with testing and all that type of st- and, and precautions. But seeing some of the pictures, behind the scenes pictures and stuff, it looks like they could, they, they, they had the they had the ability. And looking at, they actually built most of those airfields from scratch in quarries in the UK. So they, yeah, they definitely had the the uh, the thing. There's just little things as well. Like we obviously, you know, us as living historians, we're going in there looking at the kit and the equipment they're using. There's obviously, yeah, you know, the the advice has been given on how to wear the kit isn't how they wore it in the desert. We all know, you know, they they cut, especially when they were at Cabrit, you know, they were cutting around like desert hobos. They, you know, they weren't tucking their shirts in and wearing anklets and boots were perfectly black. Yes, some elements, the LRDG coming from guards did keep their standards up, but that was kind of like a in desert joke when they turned up and they're all smartly dressed. You know, I think I saw the military advisor actually wearing his uh, Royal Tank Regiment beret in one of the episodes, being in the LRDG. So that was quite a nice touch because you know, some of them were were that that way, you know, spick and span in desert. But I think I wish, in a way, they'd actually got the more hobo look in the desert. And obviously, when they're doing the Cairo scenes, tell Paddy to have a blooming shave. Yeah, that's another good one, Danny. That was some that that niggled me a little bit, but I tried not. I did try not to let it get to me because it's like it's like they just got on the photographs of um, Paddy and gone. Oh wow, he's he, you know all these like pictures that we have got of Paddy out in North Africa. He's got a beard in a lot of these, so he clearly had a beard all the time. 
But it's like, well, like you said, Danny, like, yeah, go back to Cairo. He was in that base camp when he was well, when he was back in the commandos at that base camp by Cairo. It, he would have been shaving. He wouldn't have been rocking a goatee everywhere. You know, when they're doing like the in, like doing the raid stuff and out in the desert for days and all this, yeah, of course he's going to have a bloody beard. That's when those photographs were took. But then if you look at the pictures of him in other situations, he doesn't have a beard because you can sometimes from the photographs, you can actually read kind of what the situation is. If he's back in Cairo or he's at one of the other bases nearby or whatever. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that also annoyed me. And it's safe to say the uniformity or lack of uniformity uh, definitely was uh, irritating me, uh, for sure. Um, I, from the day I went and did that uh, you know, bit of extra work, we kind of went in. We'd already done our sort of fitting, which was in London. Uh, we had to do a COVID test before that. And then we got there onto set. And it was all right for people like me who used to uniform know how to wear it. But there was no instruction given to the guys who were given this uniform, it was just kind of like, uh, oh, we're John Smith. Yep, there's your there's your kit. Get changed. And these guys were coming out and they were like, well, how do I wear this? Uh, Sam Brown, but well, this this belt, how do I wear it? And I'm like, oh, it's Sam Brown, but you put this over your shoulder, you know. And there was no instruction in that sense. And that was a real shame. And, you know, little things like on the uniform details, like the Africa uh, ribbon was on some of the guys. Um, tunics, things like that, little minor things, but you start thinking, oh, you know, the little details aren't going to be there. And you start thinking, oh, if only it was just, you know, it doesn't cost a penny. In fact, it costs less to not put it on there. It's frustrating, but it's the FS caps that were really irritating me from what I saw on screen. And um, people wearing them, uh, bearing in mind that these these ones are more than likely Soldier Fortune uh, repros or maybe another provider. They don't sit that uh, sort of graciously on people's heads, but they're just, really didn't look that great to me. And every time I see uh, someone on screen wearing it, it's like, oh, you know, it's a little bit of instruction, show you how to wear it. We'll do a little bit of a, uh, you know, meeting in the morning. Right, guys, this is how you wear your kit. You know, dress someone in the kit. It just pulls those standards a little bit tighter. Uh, for the Cairo scenes, of course, not necessarily for the for the desert scenes. Um, as you say, that whole hobo look is, is, is authentic in that sense. But a couple of other weaknesses I uh, are just cherry-picking, really is the uh the omission of um of Bill Sterling from any of the program at all. You know, Bill Sterling's David's older brother and Bill Sterling very shortly after Churchill became prime minister in 1940, he wrote to Churchill and recommended for a guerrilla um sort of uh, warfare training center to be set up in Scotland along the lines of the uh, Love at Scouts. Churchill loved the idea and it happened and of course the the commandos were, were sort of birthed but also Bill played a, a role in setting up the SAS. He was in Cairo at the time of David Sterling's uh, sort of accident, shall we say. And uh, yeah, he was there sort of, you know, giving him a guiding hand. And it was Bill who had the ear uh, of um, you know, very senior officers in Cairo as well. So no doubt played quite a serious part in it. And of course, Bill went on to be um, um, commanding officer of, of, of second uh, uh, SAS. So Bit of a bit of a story they've missed out there, but who knows? They might pull that in for yeah the second series. Who knows? Who knows? But yeah, just the final thought for me really on a weakness front is is the whole music element of it. I I don't I think it works like from what's on screen, but it's really quite surreal trying to um, watch these guys bombing around in jeeps in in you know, sort of nineteen forty two around the desert, and then you're listening to like Highway to Hell by ACDC, great song, but it's just a little bit. 
weird. I, d- I don't know. It does work, but it's just a bit like, okay, yeah, I don't really get that. But anyway, what do you guys each think in terms of, is there going to be a second series? If so, uh, where do you think they're going to take the story? Are they going to bypass Italy, um, Sicily, and go straight to Northwest Europe, or are they going to do something else? I hope there's going to be a second series because I say if you don't, you know, as long as you don't watch this thinking it's going to be a documentary drama, you just watch it for what it is and it's entertainment. I hope they are going to make a second series. Now, I hope really. Well, the thing is, the story needs continuing because. Sterling's now been captured. Paddy Main's been handed command, and we haven't taken Tunisia yet. So I'm hoping that maybe the second season will be like the probably like the you know the RSN, so to speak, of the Tunisian campaign and the link up with the Americans. Um, and then go into then do like Sicily, then go into the Sicily, Italy uh, stuff. Um, so that's what I'm hoping. For a second series, really. That's that's what I'm hoping for. And to have more bangs and more action and no love stories because they're horrible. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, FB. I think the second series will be Italy. But looking at the Jeeps, I know I know this is me putting my Jeep geek hat on. A lot of the Jeeps actually had the late war airborne slash SAS mod. So I'm gonna put a, a pound to a penny and say that series three is going to be France and Germany. I just it, it, You wouldn't have bothered going out and getting those Jeeps, which were wrong for North Africa to have all the airborne mods on, but you wouldn't have bothered going out and buying specifically airborne modded Jeeps to just use them for North Africa. You, 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 you try and get your bang for your buck and use them for a couple of series. So um, yeah, I, I agree. The second series is going to either be late North Africa, Italy, and series three. I think we're going to be going into France and Germany. I think you're bang on there, uh, Danny. Uh, I, I think what they're going to do is they're going to mimic uh, the three-part documentary series of Ben McIntyre, where the first sort of episode focuses on the desert, second on sort of you know Italy and the sort of tail end of the desert, and then the third one they're into Northwest Europe. And I'm hoping for three series worth, definitely. Yeah, it'd be really nice to have some kind of exposure for the the Italy and uh, Sicily campaign, that soft underbelly as Churchill always referred to it as, because that is massively underrepresented, uh, not just on screen, but just in living history as well, for that matter. So that would be fantastic if they if they do that. And of course, going into North, North, uh, Northwest Europe, uh, that would be great for us. And hopefully, Danny, you'll be able to get uh, get some uh, work in by <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, renting them your Jeep out. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, there we go. There's the uh, there's the, our sort of take on SAS Rogue Heroes, the series available on the BBC. I think it's a, it's a great series. I'm definitely going to be watching it again. Uh, that's our thoughts on it. I would implore you to go and watch the three part Ben McIntyre documentary series. It's available on the BBC to watch uh, free of charge. If you're a TV license player, of course. And um, yeah, that's it from us. Uh, all I want to do really is just plug a fantastic new book that's just come out. This isn't a paid partnership or anything, but if you're interested in the SAS and their exploits during world war two, uh, you'll definitely not go wrong by checking out Damian Lewis's new book, SAS Brothers in Arms. I'm on chapter two at the moment. It's absolutely cracking so far, and all his other books have been superb on the subject. So uh, get stuck in on it, and hopefully uh, we might even have him on the podcast soon. Who knows? But until next time, thanks for listening. Keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations 
help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.